Well, good morning, everybody. I want to say hello to those of you in this room and also those of you joining us online from home or wherever you are. Welcome. Really glad that you're here. Uh, many years ago now, uh, Tim and I bought our first house in Iowa. And it was this old house. We always say, that's like going to be the coolest house we've ever will ever will live in. Because you could see the Mississippi River from every single room in the house. It was built in 1867. So it was this old house. And uh, we moved there. We bought it. We only lived there in Iowa in that house for 15 months. So it wasn't very long. But we made it like... Um, you know, a part-time job to work on that house. <laughs> and so every evening and weekend, we were like, you know, fixing it up, scraping off wallpaper and painting and doing all the projects of an old house. And so when we sold it, um, we made just a little bit of money. We moved back to Denver. And we were looking to use that on a down payment on a house here. And um, we just loved the old house idea. We were like, you know, looking at magazines of old houses and, you know, watching shows of people remodeling old houses. So we fell in love with this uh, triplex in Northwest Denver Highlands neighborhood, also very old, like a brownstone triplex um, that was built by the same people who built the Browns Palace, and they built them for the workers of the stonemasons who were working on the Browns Palace. So anyway, we just fell in love with this house. The house was really much more than we should or could afford at that time. And um, yet, we just, you know, we talked ourselves into all the reasons that was a good idea. And we talked ourselves out of all the reasons that might be kind of like a, a <laughs> major stretch, not a good idea. And our lender um, told us, like, we could get this house with 0% down on an adjustable rate mortgage. And um, the big short hadn't come out yet. And so <laughs> we thought this was like a really good idea. And we signed those papers and we were so excited. And then like, you know, three years later, it adjusted. And, uh, and so then we were like, oh no, like, <laughs> what did we do? Because the, I remember the payment went up $1,000 a month. And um, for a couple of, like, you know, nonprofit pastor people, that, that was, like, extremely stressful. And I'm just wondering about you. Like, have you ever made a decision that you later came to regret? Have you ever purchased something or leased something and then thought to yourself later, like, what was I thinking? And, of course, like, you weren't thinking. You were selling yourself, right? You were selling yourself on all the pros and away from all of the cons. Have you ever done this before? Made a decision that, that you come to regret later? Talk yourself into something and kind of ignore the red flags? Well, we're in this series uh, for the month of June, and it's called Guided. And what we're considering is how we can make better decisions in step with God's Holy Spirit. And last Sunday was Pentecost Sunday. It's the Happy Birthday Church Sunday, where we're considering the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in the life of our community and how God is guiding us, leading us. So we're basing this series on a book uh, that is called Better Decisions, Fewer Regrets. And the big idea is just that we often overlook the relationship between really good questions and good decisions. But of course, every counselor in the room already knows this, right? The power of a good question. But we often overlook that relationship, the relationship between a good question and a good decision. 
And so in the series, what we're doing is we're going through these five questions, and we're just saying, if we would make it our habit when we're faced with decisions of any consequence, be them financial or relational or vocational or whatever they may be, if we can make it our habit to just ask ourselves good questions prayerfully before God, answer those questions honestly, and then act accordingly, we can experience what it's like to be you know, guided by God's Holy Spirit, creating a little space to pause and pray and allow God to guide us in big decisions of our lives. So we've been talking about this verse from Proverbs, and I'd invite you to say this with me. We're kind of memorizing it together this month. I encourage you to memorize it with your kids or grandkids. Uh, let's say this together. The prudent see danger and take refuge, but the simple keep going and pay the penalty. And we've been talking about how when the Bible talks about the prudent, what that means is the prudent are like, they're the, the, the shrewd, the crafty, they're the wise people. And what do they do when they see danger? They take refuge. But when the Bible says the simple, the simple, the Bible's talking about like the people who are naive, the people who will fall for anything, the simple-minded, they're the people. When, when they see the danger, they keep right on going, and they pay the penalty for it. Or the old King James Version says they suffer for it. And so what does it mean to become the people who, the prudent ones, they see, we see danger. And when we see it, we take refuge. We don't keep right on going and pay the penalty for it. Because here's the thing, even um, though these questions that we're posing this month if, the, if we'll make it our habit to ask them and answer them honestly, we are going to come into conflict with that inner sales associate that's like inside our minds, the person who is saying, act now, act fast, ignore future consequences. But the prudent, the wise, the shrewd, the, the ones who see the danger and take refuge, they're the people who in life, they connect the dots. They're the people who understand like, the decisions that I'm making today in my life, relationally, vocationally, financially, these decisions today, they have a way of just wiggling themselves into my future, into my future relationships, into my future self. And so the prudent are going to see danger. They're going to take refuge. But the simple, they're going to keep going. They're going to pay the penalty. So um, we're going to try to ask good questions, answer them honestly, act accordingly to help us make better decisions, live with fewer regrets. So the first week we talked about question number one. Question number one is this. Am I being honest with myself? And you can add that word, really? Am I being honest with myself, really? Because as I told you a couple weeks ago, I got a master's in leadership, and the hardest person to lead is the person in the mirror. It's the same for you. Like, the easiest person for you to deceive is the person in the mirror. So we have to start with, like, when we're facing a decision, am I being honest with myself, really? Like, a month from now, when the bill comes, do I really want that monthly payment? Or three years from now, do I really want the result of this decision? Am I being honest with myself, really? It's the first question is kind of like a question of integrity. Am I being honest? And then last week, we looked at the story of Joseph in the scriptures, in the Hebrew scriptures. And uh, we just posed the, the question, uh, the second question, which is this. What story do I want to tell? 
And we talked about how right now, every decision we're making in present, once it's behind you, it becomes a story you tell. So is it a story I want to tell? When I'm making this decision in real time, I can ask myself, it's kind of a legacy question. Like when this decision just becomes a, a story I talk to friends about around the campfire or my kids tell about me someday, what story do I want them to tell? What story do I want to tell? So number one, am I being honest with myself? Number two, what story do I want to tell? And we talked about how like in the life of Joseph, even when it is clear in everybody's mind, he is a victim of circumstances. You could look at it, you're like, I mean, there's, he's, you know, sold twice and he's imprisoned falsely. I mean, all sorts of things that are terrible, unwanted things come his way. Even then, Joseph has a choice. He has a choice in how he chooses to react or respond. Is he going to create a little bit of space between the stimulus, right, the thing that is the unwanted thing happening to him and the response. And that little space we talked about is like your superpower. It was his. It is yours. It is that opportunity to pause and go like, how am I going to respond to this unwanted thing coming my way? And you always have that power to choose how you're going to respond, even in the worst of circumstances. So that's number two. And then today, the third question is this. Is there a tension that deserves my attention. Is there a tension inside of me, a hesitation, an unease? Um, I think old school preachers used to be like, I had a check in my spirit about that. Have you ever heard that phrase? I had a check in my spirit about that. It's this idea that like, it might make sense to all the people around me, but there's a tension in me. There's a hesitation in me. There's a, a feeling that not quite sure, and sometimes doesn't make any sense initially. We have initially, sometimes we have no idea why there's this tension. So is there a tension that deserves my attention? It's kind of a question of conscience. Like when you're facing a decision, it's a, it's a question of what's, what's going on in your conscience that God has given you, and how might God's spirit be guiding you even in that tension? So don't rush by it, don't ignore it, don't brush it off, don't talk yourself out of it. Pay attention to the tension or let the, the thing that's bothering you bother you. Let it bother you. Don't just rush by it. Don't just brush it aside. So there's a fascinating story in the scriptures uh, from the life of King David. And I think it illustrates the importance of our paying attention to the tension. Now, in the case of this story, in the case of the life of King David, it was a very inconvenient tension that he faced. Um, if you remember, David kind of hits the pages of scripture as a, a shepherd boy, and he, um, a prophet comes and says that David is going to be the next king of Israel. But the problem was that there already was a king, King Saul. And so this is kind of inconvenient that the prophet is saying David is going to be the next king, but King Saul is the current king. But King Saul is not doing a good job of being king. And so in the story, God decides to replace him, but not yet. Not quite yet. And so David um, 
as time goes by, he's growing up, and he has this famous encounter with a Philistine giant whose name is Goliath. And most people, even if you've never stepped foot in a church before, have heard the phrase David and Goliath and kind of know the story. But David um, defeats Goliath, and he becomes like a household name in the kingdom of Israel. It didn't take long before his popularity as a person is much greater than that of King Saul. People love David, and Saul becomes jealous of this dynamic. He is jealous, and he wants to, he actually tries to kill David. So David then flees because King Saul is trying to kill him. He flees, and David becomes a fugitive. But the thing is, is David has grown in popularity. So initially it's like dozens, and then it's like hundreds of men flee with him and become like this vagabond kind of army without a home. They're all fugitives. David is their leader, and they're on the run together. So he's got this small army, and he's with his, uh, his people. Well, Saul, King Saul, gets wind of, he gets like a little intel of where David might be hiding, where David and his men might be. So Saul takes like 3,000 men and goes after David, seeking to eliminate this threat to the throne, eliminate David's life. And one afternoon, late in the afternoon, they're winding their way through the desert of En Gedi. Now, some of you have been to Israel, and you visit the spot where they think that this uh, may have happened. Very fascinating. But they're moving through the desert of En Gedi, and um, Saul has to relieve himself. And this is the story of the scriptures. So he goes to this cave alone, unguarded, and he goes uh, to take care of business. So if you're familiar with the story, then you know um, it takes a very interesting turn right here. Because David and his handful of men actually went kind of split up. And David and a few of his men went and hid in the very cave where Saul comes to relieve himself in private. And so you can just imagine, like, from David's perspective, he is inside this cave. He's looking forward to the mouth of the cave. He sees the silhouette of King Saul, who is coming to take his life, enter. But, you know, King Saul has just come out of the Mideastern sun, Middle Eastern sun, and so he's probably blinded. He probably can't see anything. David and his men are way back in the cave. And so Saul becomes very vulnerable, right? He like, takes off his robe. He starts doing his business. And David and his men are like, what? Like, this must be a sign. It's got to be an omen from God. Like, our enemy has just been, like, delivered right into our hands. Clearly, this is the moment to take out the life of King Saul. Like, his enemy is at hand. What else could it mean? Everybody knew that David was next. The only thing standing in, in, in the way of David becoming king is this man, who is right here, right before them, unguarded, vulnerable, unsuspecting. In fact, the scriptures say that David's men even say to him, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. It's like super clear to everybody. Like David, this is what you predicted. Kill Saul, become king. Simple. We can all get out of this, like, 
fugitive wilderness wandering, and we can go and be in power together. It's like the perfect scenario. There's no civil war needed. Just eliminate this man. There's like minimal bloodshed. Come on, do it. Kill the king before the, kill, before the king is going to kill you. And you could just imagine, like, if you're David in that cave, the tension of that moment, the, um, just the emotion of the pressure that David must have felt to act and to act fast. Here's this moment. It's right before him. It's going to slip away. But David, he felt something else also. There was a tension that needed his attention. So as he moves forward, like with his knife in hand, ready to like slit the throat of his enemy, he feels a hesitation. It doesn't make any sense. No one in that cave is going to understand it. But he feels a tension. Like if David is successful, he knows at least in his mind, he's like, well, then I'll be king and all my men will get out of the situation. But somewhere between, like, leaving the back of the cave and getting to the, the back of Saul, it dawns on David, like, just, just probably seconds before the decision that he's about to make, that everybody's going to understand, everybody's going to applaud, everybody's going to support. He has this, like, moment of clarity He's like, wait a minute. I'm about to murder the king. It's not war. It's not combat. It, this is murder. It can't be right. And who put Saul on the throne in the first place? Who made Saul king? God did that. So who am I to replace what God has put in place? That cannot be God's plan here. I can't kill the king. Even if the king is trying to kill me, I can't kill the king. So in spite of all this pressure on David to act, and to act now, and to act fast, in spite of all the expectations of his friends, who are just like probably a few yards behind him, David changes course. He is like inches away from Saul, and it, it occurs to him, just because I kill the king doesn't mean that this story necessarily ends with me becoming king. But one thing is for sure, if I kill the king, I will have killed the king. That will be my legacy. That will be my story. I will be sitting around a campfire someday when my grandchildren are like, hey, grandpa, tell us the story of when you were in the cave and you killed King Saul. And David decides, like, that wasn't the story he wanted to tell. There is a tension that needed his attention. There was something that bothered him, and he let it bother him. The scriptures actually tell us that David was, this is the phrase, conscience-stricken. That's how we know David was, like, paying attention to the tension. And somehow, some way, he actually did something that very few of us have the self-control to actually do. He stopped himself mid-course. It's very hard to do. 
Instead of murdering Saul, David cuts off the corner of his robe instead. And um, he goes to the back of the cave with this little bit of Saul's robe. Of course, you could just imagine David's men, like appalled. Like, you just let, you just let this amazing opportunity slip through your hands. Like, David probably had some serious explaining to do. That was the moment. You just let it slip by. You didn't act. You lost the one and only chance. And uh, David says to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed. And his men say, well, that's fine. Like, let us go kill him. And David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. So Saul goes, rejoins like the 3,000-person army, prepares to continue on their search for David because Saul doesn't know anything that just happened. And as they begin to like, he gets up, mounts his mule, and they begin to go, Saul hears from up in the cave he was just at someone's voice. You could just imagine like the whole army turning, and David's like, Saul, Saul. And now, here's the guy that they've been paid to kill. Here's the person they've been hunting. Here is David. And what does David do? He holds up this little piece of cloth, which is the same color as Saul's royal robe. And Saul kind of lifts up his robe. And he sees like, oh, that, that is the corner of my robe that's cut off that that David is holding in the cave that I was just in all alone. And David bows down. He bows down to Saul from the mouth of that cave. And then he stands up to his feet. And everybody would have recognized in that moment, David's, David's the better man. He didn't kill the one who was coming to kill him. He spared Saul's life when Saul would have taken his. And so after this short speech, David concludes with this really powerful statement that we can all take to heart. He says, may the Lord judge between you and me, Saul. In other words, he's saying, like, I'll wait. I'll allow God to determine the outcome of this conflict. I will not take matters into my own hands. I will not replace what God has put in place. I will not play God in your life or in my life. I will not use bad behavior as an excuse, like even your bad behavior. I won't use your bad behavior as an excuse to do bad things. I will not become like you, Saul. And Saul actually turns his army around and goes back to the city. He's like, if you want to write a story worth telling, you got to let those moments of conscience, those things that bother you, bother you, to create a little bit of space to give the tension inside your attention. It's interesting in the story because the story goes on, and months later, Saul and his army are in a battle with the Philistines, 
and this random archer shoots a random arrow into the army, and this random arrow goes into a random, like, space in Saul's armor and mortally wounds him. But he doesn't want to die at the hands of the enemy, so he actually falls on his own sword. And when word gets back to the city that Saul is now dead, everybody decides David is now king. And I just think, like, so interesting. I bet David, I mean, he had to have thought, wow, like, if I would have known that this is how this is going to go, maybe that moment back there in the cave, maybe that decision back there wouldn't have been so hard. Like, if only God or an angel could have just, like, shown up and said to David, David, just nine chapters from now, Saul's going to die at the hand of his enemy anyway, so just do the right thing. Wouldn't that be nice? But life does not usually work that way, does it? And we have to pay attention to the tension inside, the conscience that God has given us, and not be so certain of our own ability to always predict the future, to always know for certain, if I kill the king, I'll become king. We don't know that. Your conscience is a piece of how you trust and are guided by God's Holy Spirit. So this brings me back to you, to you and to me. Whenever we are facing a decision of any consequence, you know, educational, relational, vocational, financial, any decision of any consequence, we can just make it our habit to ask this question. Is there a tension that deserves my attention? And if there is, how do I create a little bit of space little bit of time do I need to just walk away for a minute how do I involve a trusted wise person of wisdom who I trust a person of solid counsel how do I involve them because maybe I come back and say yes maybe I come back and say no but if there's a tension that needs your attention you owe it to yourself to just create a little bit of pause create a little bit of space create a little bit of time before you decide it's one of the ways in which the Holy Spirit may be guiding you. Now, most of us, I know, in this story we just looked at from Scripture, most of us are not in line to be king with the opportunity before us to kill the current king, right? That's not most of our reality. Most of us are not having a conscience-stricken moment, attention that needs our attention like David did, but we still have them. Just like David had an impulse to want to kill Saul at that moment, you and I experience those moments of, of impulse where we need to create a little bit of space all the same. So how we handle our impulses really is, it's writing the story of our lives. Because the decisions you you make today are writing the story of your life. Same for me. So I was thinking, maybe since that is not our exact reality, one of the places we often experience impulse that I think is pretty widespread, shared within a room like this, is around 
our impulse to buy, just living in a consumeristic, capitalistic society, I think we all know what it's like to just become enamored with something that maybe once my head and my heart start going down the trail, it's almost like hard to stop it. I just become, I just talk myself into it. I get so committed to it. It's almost like there's no turning back. I think the impulse to buy is probably an impulse we all share. So I had read this uh, liturgy. It's a little simple prayer, and I thought we would close with this today because I think it's a more shared experience for all of us as we consider these ideas. Uh, it's a liturgy for when you have an impulse to buy. And so we're going to close with this. Um, I'll, read, I'll kick us off reading it, and then whenever you see bold on the screen, I'd invite you, if you'd like, to read that those bold words along with me. This is a liturgy for when you have the impulse to buy. And may this prayer guide us all in paying attention to the tension, creating some space to really allow God's Holy Spirit to guide us into better decisions. Let's pray together as we close. A liturgy for when you have the impulse to buy. I know, O oh Lord, that you are no petty tyrant, begrudging your creatures every passing happiness. You've crafted a creation fraught with small pleasures and have fashioned us with great capacity to enjoy pleasurable things. So it is not from a sense of dour asceticism that I pause to question my desire to purchase a thing I suddenly want. It is rather because I have ample reason not to trust my reasons for wanting. Say these words with me. In hindsight, I see how the history of my stewardship is spotted with the acquisition of costly things I might in sober judgment have foregone. Things I have not used enough to justify their cost. Things I could not well afford. Things that actively warred against wise use of my time. Luxuries that offered no true benefit. Things purchased on impulse when a more reasoned and prayerful consideration might have led me to a better stewardship of your trust, O oh God. And I'll read this part to you. So sensing now some warning sign embedded in this new desire to buy, I would first pause, asking that I might, under your spirit's right conviction, better divine my own motives unto the end that I might be wiser in my choosing. If the dissonance I sense is a holy constraint, then increase that inhibition. Give me restraint to wait at least until that first powerful impulse passes, that I might make sound consideration. Whether this purchase might in the end be wise or no, I would still wrestle well with the question and so learn by practice to hobble my old habit of purchasing on flimsy whims. You could say this screen along with me if you'd like. This is hardly about the purchase of a thing anyway, is it, oh God? It is mostly about my heart and what I treasure and where I seek my satisfaction. So let me learn to love you enough, O oh Lord, that I need no cons constant stream 
of bright and shiny things to ease some itch or ache within my soul. Free my heart from craven clenching, as if ownership of a thing could ever bring about the gain of anything eternal. I know I cannot keep the things I hold, and so I would not sleepwalk through this life, always amassing that which will be of no true benefit. And together we say, let me instead, O Lord, tend well what you have trusted to my keeping, planting good seed for future reaping in eternal fields. Yes, I would enjoy the pleasures you place in my life, and I would let such enjoyments always turn my heart again in praise to you for your many blessings. But I do not want to seek such pleasures at the expense of good stewardship or allow them any pilfered share of my heart's devotion. Together we say, so teach me in this moment, O oh God, how to yield my small desires to your greater will. Give me wisdom for the making of sound decisions. Let me learn by practice what it means to seek first your kingdom, your purposes, your glory. Amen. And Lord, I pray it may be true that more and more our heart's devotion and all that flows out of it, our wants, would align with your wants. Help us, God, to pause, to give attention to the tension, and to hear your spirit guiding us in each decision we're faced with today. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen.